Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 134 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, I have good news and I have bad news. What's the bad news first? The bad news is our audience won't have to listen to you go on and on about your tongue issues uh, this episode because we have a special guest on. Great. Which is the good news. Okay, good. That's so, the good news, the guest? Yes, the good news is the okay. guest. The bad news is our listeners can't listen to your, you know, uh, everyday mal- like malaise and things like that. So if people want to go ahead and ask Angelo what's wrong, Angelo Furin on Twitter is the way to go with that, right? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. DM me. So we are super happy to have Jonathan Schreiner of Oddbury Studios here today. So I'm going to read a short bio and then we're going to throw to Jonathan. So Jonathan is a solo developer who's about to release his first title, Crew 167, The Grand Block Odyssey. He started as a game developer, as a hobbyist, finding a way to distract himself from his old job. And in September 2016, he decided to pursue his hobby full time and founded his own studio, Oddbury's. The vision for the company is to develop great experiences with a strong focus on compelling story and amazing soundtracks. So Jonathan, welcome to Double Density. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So I guess uh, the first thing uh, beyond the bio that I would like to know is tell us a bit about yourself. Um, uh, I, and I guess like a broad like overview of your history as a gamer and what kind of brought you to the point of wanting to make a game. Okay, yeah, let's go. Um, <laughs> so where I come as a gamer, I guess I've always been passionate like, with video games. I think when I was a young kid, the youngest photo that my parents have of me is like when I'm one year old and I'm already holding a Nintendo controller and looking at the TV, not really understanding what I'm doing. But yeah, I was already touching in it, like kind of intrigued by the whole thing even back then. So uh, I think games have always been part of my life as I grew up and kind of always had on my bucket list that I wanted to make games. Like it was something that I wanted to do. But growing up in like suburban area of Montreal, not really touching what the city is like. I never really was close to where games were made. So for me, it was almost always like something that's not possible in a way, like something that I really wanted to do, but that's kind of like saying I want to go on Mars. Uh, It's not something I can do actively. So I feel like that's kind of the way that I always saw what making games would look like, uh, something that I would want to do, but I would never do. So what I ended up doing is studying into other branches. Uh, So I studied both computer science and business administration and ended up as a software engineer, as a consultant working for other companies uh, up until at this point, I want to say four years ago, where I decided maybe that's not my jam. And actually, right now, there's good opportunities to make video games on your own. There's so many great engines out there that you can just start and pick up. And pretty much the way it started is I, I picked it up as a hobby, doing that on the evenings because I didn't really enjoy my day job at that point and I needed anything in the in my free time to keep myself sane in some ways and just picked up Unreal Engine, started playing around with that and really found that I was enjoying myself. And then with a bit more research, I kind of discovered that Montreal was one of the best places to make games on this planet. So I figured out that it was probably a good time to just get out there and start connecting with the industry. Was there a moment for you, uh, you know, when you went from like hobbyist to sort of like, this is the moment for me where I need to take this like serious. I know that you mentioned this in your bio that like in 2016, you decided to make the, the jump, but like, was there like one specific moment where you're like, I think I can do this. So I think what the buyer didn't say. So I ended up quitting my job in February, 2016, uh, because I was really, I wanted to try something else and I pretty much launched my career as a freelancer at that point. So I was 
trying to start other businesses that was related to my old domain, but you know, would keep myself from making a decent salary. So that was in February 2016. In September 2016, what really pushed me over, you know, the that was the deciding moment that I said, okay, I'm going to do this, is I went to some sort of conference uh, that happened in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, and it was pretty much a entrepreneur that I really enjoy uh, called Dan Martel, which is from New Brunswick. And I had subscribed... I think in March of that year to some online program, some learning program with that kind of a program to learn how to launch a business. So the title of the program was Idea to Exit. And part of the package is that in September of that year, we would all join up in Toronto and have a three-day conference. And I think it was kind of that moment when I went there and was inspired by a bunch of other entrepreneurs that were doing crazy stuff. They were really pursuing all of their dreams that I kind of figured out that maybe all of the other business I was trying to attempt to create was not really what I was passionate about and that I should probably just go and do the passion, even though I didn't see that working out right at the beginning. But all of those entrepreneurs are full of crazy ideas and they were all pushing me to say, no, you should definitely do that if that's what you want to do. And (laughs) I just kind of listened to these people. So peer pressure. Yeah, definitely peer pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Now, is this your um, your first big video game endeavor, or were there other times you were involved in something uh, to this scale? To this scale, I would say that this is definitely the you know the biggest project. It's a three and a half year project uh, that I've just wrapped up, and I think at the time that this podcast is going to be live, my project will actually be live as well. So, three years and a half is one of the biggest project if not only in video games, like Toto, like one of the biggest projects. Even university was shorter than that, right? But in my teenage years, I I think the very first memory that I have of making games was in StarCraft Brood War, um, this very old RTS game, uh, but still very amazing in my opinion, even today. Uh, It came with what was called a map editor, so it was some sort of software that you could use to create your own maps. And there was some very basic programming you can do. But for the time that this game came out, there was a lot of things that you could actually do with that engine once you understood the, you know, all, all the different features of it. So I probably spent a year, I say a year, probably two to three years just making custom maps on my own and just learning how to design different maps how to do basic programming and just come up with little designs, studying all the different maps that were out there as well. So he was using that also to, to kind of learn what was possible about the engine. So that's probably the, the first memory that I have about making video games, if we want to say it like that. The other thing that I remember as well was probably when I was 14, 15, uh, there was a group of people that I joined and that was... Like indie games were not really a thing back then, but we were a small group, maybe three, four people that tried to make a custom map on the Dungeon Siege 1 engine. So again, at the time, I feel like there were so many games that were just launching with a map editor that allowed you to do your own custom project. And that was kind of the way to do indie games in that way. Like it, it was more considered to be mods, I would say, but there was still so many people just trying to actively do things using the software that the big companies had. It still kind of prepares you in a way to do something uh, like this. And what engine exactly was uh, did you use in this game? Um, 
Not sure. I think it was their own engine. Back in the days, like there was no, like right now it's pretty easy. There's Unreal, there's Unity, there's Godot, there's uh, Game Maker. There's a few big ones that you can kind of name, but back then everyone had to pretty much make their own engine. Okay. okay. Uh, I think it was called the gas-powered engine because they were gas-powered games. Uh, but yeah, by buying their game, you, they were just making their tools available for you to make whatever you 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 could do on your own. And and speaking of names, where does the name Crew 167, the Grand Block Odyssey, come from? So this was an evolved uh, process. So I think when I started making this game, uh, it started with a very simple project, like code name type of type of thing. So it was called Project Earth at first, which was a terrible name because uh, if you try to Google Project Earth, you'd probably never find the game at first, yeah. and it's not a very compelling name. <laughs> so. I think in the first month that I found this code name and I was using it publicly while uh, I was showing off the game to other people, they said that it is a terrible name and you should change it. So the next best thing that I found was the Grand Block Odyssey because it was a game about blocks and I wanted to be an odyssey that you go through multiple environments. So I felt like the Grand Block Odyssey was probably the best of my creativeness at that point. So I ended up settling for that name and I carried it over for... Two years and a half. Uh, I was using that name publicly on social, online. Uh, if you Google like the Grand Block Odyssey by itself, you would find probably the older trailer that I released back then. And while I was prototyping and developing that game, the main character of the game ended up being called Crew 167. So it was not even important enough to have a you know full name, first name and last name. It was just named Crew 167. And then at some point I figured out that this unnamed character deserves a little bit more fame, so why not put it on the game title? <laughs> and then to kind of you know mix and match and make sure that I don't lose all the marketing effort that I might have had done in the past two and a half year, I decided to just put the both together, Crew 167, the Grand Block Odyssey. Does, does 167 have a, a specific meaning to you, or is, would that be a spoiler to the game? It would probably random numbers I tapped on. Tapped on my keyboard oh, okay. at some point. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, 167 looks aesthetically pleasing. I guess that's true. I think it's a very good number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about your favorite numbers, but uh, that's a weird question to ask. Um, so I guess my next question for you would be, uh, to someone who's never uh, uh, sat down and, like, developed a game for beginnings, and can you walk us through sort of, like, the high-level steps of, you know, um, the coding and then the other features that get involved all the way to release? Because I know that some people would be curious to know um, sort of, like, the, the process behind how to get a game made. A game is probably the most, one of the most complicated things you can ever attempt. Uh, so there's m- multiple different th- things that goes into it, and... Now that I've gone through it, I will be able to resume it. But when I started, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. One thing that I really love about games, because for me, it really is a matchup of like storytelling. So let's say books, movies, cinematography, music, all of the soundtrack, the sound design, and a little bit of interactivity. You mix everything together and you try to make something that's greater than the sum of all of them. So by adding all those different spheres, you really add a lot of complexity to the whole thing. So there's not, in theory, I did this game almost alone. Like most of the the game development was done by myself, but I had to go outside and work with so many other people because there's just so many different skill set that you should be having and that you should be putting together and really 
master all of them to make something that actually makes sense in the end. Now to answer the broader question where, like, how do you get started? Well, let's just break it down very quickly. So you, you start with a concept, uh, which is something that you will probably do with a very small team. Then you'll move on to a prototype. And then you'll do some sort of pre-production or maybe a vertical slice that we call it. And the last one would be the production. And I guess I should add a fifth one, which is marketing and distribution. And I'm going to go over all of those just to make sure that I break them down. And like I said, this is kind of the formula, but everyone will be doing that in a very different way. Like I think personally, I probably have a way of working that will be probably very different than if I was to bring somebody else next to me and ask him the exact same question. So if we go back to concepts, some people will be super comfortable just pulling up an Excel sheet and or like a Word document and start writing ideas and really creating what is the concept. So in the concept, you would define like what is the different game mechanics? What can the player do? What can they interact with? What is the overall goal of the video game? Some people will dive a little bit more into what is the narrative or what is the universe that I'll be in? Which type of characters will I be interacting with? In my case, I kind of always skip that part and go directly into prototyping. I feel so much more comfortable just jumping into the engine and start programming stuff because I think as I can play around with it and interact with the feature that I'm developing, uh, they will make a lot more sense to me than just writing down them down on paper. So that's the second phase. It's like we, we got a bunch of ideas. Let's just put them into something that works and just start putting it out there and you know playing around with it, really seeing how the interaction as a character like as you playing, as you controlling the character in a world, how does that interact? How does that work, etc. I think one aspect that I uh, I think really helped me for my first game, and not maybe not everyone that starts will feel like this is the way to go, uh, but for me, as early as possible, I just try to get out there and have other people play the game, because I think within the first month there will be so many things that you don't know, and so many things you assume that as soon as you put that prototype into the hand of someone else and they can see and they can try to understand what you're trying to get to, they'll be able to give you some very valuable feedback. Playtesting for me has always been part of uh, Crew 167 and I think it's going to be as much of a part for the next game is as early as possible, have people playtest it, play around with it, give you feedback as soon as possible because the sooner you figure out that something is wrong, the quicker you can be at fixing it or improving it. In doing all this, though, what what surprised you the most about the whole process? I think for the first game, it was how how so many things I didn't know really existed. Like so many things that I I didn't know I had to be doing. There's a lot of things that we know. Like when you look at a game, like you have to do art, you have to do programming, uh, you have to put a story, for example. Well, when you jump into the art, there's the whole aspect, and I'm talking about 3D, but it's it's slightly different in 2D, but kind of similar as well, is that there's the actual process of making the 3D model. So most people that are very good at 3D modeling, you could almost think of it as if you were making a figurine out of clay. You're just making the clay, the little figurine, and then once you're done, that artist is done with it. And like that's how it happens in bigger studios. Then there's somebody else that will take that clay and that will paint on it. That will do the texture of the clothes and make sure that they choose all the different colors and make sure that it actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different person. 
Then before we even get to animation, which I thought was straight up the, what you would do, there's a process of rigging, which is to kind of figure out where all the different bones in a character would be and how each of those bones impact the actual surface of the model so that when you try to animate it, it doesn't bend in a very uncomfortable way. And then there's the actual animation. Now, animation could be two things. You could actually have an animator that will make the animation using completely a software, or you could have somebody that has a mocap capture system and that will start mocapping the different animation. Making the animation for the character is not the same as making the animation for the faces. So that's completely somebody else that will take care of that because the like the rigging of the face in a way, like the way that the face will move will be somebody else's expertise, not the same person that would actually do how the arm is moving while you're running, for example. The sort of like overall challenge here is is uh, learning and adapting as you go along and as you realize that you're going to need certain resources or, you know, um, sort of figure out uh, both simple and complex problems. Yeah, that that's a very good way to <laughs> explain it in three words. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I want to take a second to talk about the music because the music uh, in this game is a very integral part of the whole experience. Yes. Uh, so this is uh, your chance to put a spotlight on the music. I think the same as you. I mean, for me, the music has been definitely a big part of it, but it got amplified by how much everyone that was playing the game were loving it. I think it really showed that I was kind of lucky to have found a very good music composer to help me on this project. Before I go directly into it, I think I'm just going to like introduce how I found the music composer. I think for the first three, four months of the game development, uh, I didn't really know anybody, so I just kind of used royalty-free type of music online, and I just put that on the game. And even if you go back and find the very first trailer of the game, uh, it was some royalty-free music that I got online, and I just put it on a trailer, and I thought it looked kind of good because I managed to do a trailer that mixed gameplay and music, and I was so excited. And then in January, then that would be January 2017, I did uh, an event in Montreal called the Demo Night. Uh, it happens every January of every year where we, well, the organizer put 15 developers on the stage and they each have five minutes to present their game to the whole audience. And it's a mix of different industry people and even normal, like normal people, regular people or <laughs> gamers can show up and go there. And it's a very cool event because it really is people, they're put on the stage, they have five minutes, they have to play the game live, so nothing is prepared up front. There's no presentation pitch or predefined videos. Like Everybody has to be on there, they have to play their game live. And it goes very quick, and it's very amazing. So that's the demo night. But I was lucky enough the first year that I showed up and I was on that stage and I presented my game in front of about four or 500 people at that point. Which was kind of scary because I didn't really have a lot of experience making games and I was still kind of new at the process. And I knew there would be a lot of people in like in that in that room that were probably people working for, let's say, Ubisoft or EA and all of those big studios. So there was kind of a pressure there. But it was still a very cool night. And I think a few days later I get a random message on Facebook about somebody being like, Hey, I saw you at the demo night. Uh, I thought the project looked cool. I'm a music composer and uh, like I'm offering my services to do the music for your game. And I think at that point, I was only making games for four months, but I had probably had 10 people 
actually come to me and be like, hey, I can do your music. It would be very nice. So it was kind of hard to find a good music composer, but there was something different about that guy, about the way that he presented himself. So I click on his Facebook profile and I saw that we had two, three friends in common. And uh, one of them was like, it was my best friend. Like he was actually the best man at my wedding. So I was like, okay, so he knows my best man. That's pretty cool. And I just messaged my friend and I was asking him like, oh, what do you think about this guy? And he said, he's freaking amazing. Like, take him. I was like, okay. What a weird coincidence. It's a very weird coincidence. And I just realized I said all of that and I never said his name. So <laughs> the music composer is called Samuel <laughs> Derosier. That's how we started working on the soundtrack, I think, almost right away. Like, I was just excited about learning something new and just touching a new aspect of game development and just the initial sample that he did for me. I was, I could definitely say that the quality of the music that he was sending me was so much higher than everything I could find online. And plus, it was my own music and nobody else could technically have it on their trailer. So that was kind of a very cool opportunity as well. So I guess now is the time to sort of describe uh, Crew 167, the Grand Block Odyssey, in terms of like gameplay, in terms of story, right? So uh, I guess first things first, how would you classify it in terms of like a, a gaming genre? So so the, so so the big genre is basically a puzzle game. So I mean, not everyone know about that type, but it's a sokoban type of puzzle game. Sokoban is some Japanese word, I think, for a warehouse worker, somebody that moves boxes around. When I saw the the trailer, uh, the first thing that popped in my head was Kickle Cubicle. I've never heard of that one, you know? No? Uh, <laughs> wow. So it's crazy how I can make a game for like three years and I still get new references of people being like, oh, this looks like this type of ga- this game. And I'm like, I've never heard of it. Um, it's crazy how many different type of game of that genre exists out there. I think even I didn't know there was that many. So yeah, the core mechanic is that you push a block on a switch and that kind of unlocks an Rio. So it's very, very basic in terms of the core mechanic. But the way that I kind of push myself to innovate on the concept is that I wanted that to be the absolute only mechanic that I had in the game. So I found different ways that I can enhance or change the flavor of each of those blocks. And even at some point, each of those switches to react a little bit differently based on how the player is interacting with them. But that's one part of the game. I think one thing that I really wanted to do when I started this project is um, add a little bit more, um, add a little bit more like objective behind the whole reason why somebody would play this game. And for me, I really pushed it by pushing the uh, storytelling aspect of this game. So I kind of designed this whole concept that you're in a spaceship, you're flying to try and reach a distant planet. And just to give a very short introduction, uh, your your own planet is suffering from overpopulation and global warming and things are getting really bad. And you've kind of been sent on that mission to go and explore some uh, somebody else that we could potentially put all of our people over there and hopefully survive this catastrophe that's happening back at home. It, it is a sci-fi type of area where like you're in a spaceship you push blocks around and i really want to push that into a different way that so that after you finish a puzzle the the reward that you get is not a harder puzzle but it it is a part of that story that gets presented to you in the form of cinematics and cutscenes and 
and other cool things like that. You're literally unlocking the game through the game's mechanics, which I found really interesting when I first got a glimpse of it, like what, like a year and a half ago at this point, a year ish. Uh, I mean, probably very, no, even before that, I think you saw it in the first year and a half at least. Okay. Uh, But what I found super interesting is that, yeah, you literally need to solve puzzles to move the game along and then it unlocks a a story at the same time, which is kind of like an interesting kind of like uh, double entendre of the concept of unlocking a puzzle. So that's another thing that I discovered when I started making game is that for me, I could make a game mechanic and then find a story and put those two together in the same game and people would be happy with that. What I found out really quickly is that people find that if there's not a clear connection between what you're doing as a game mechanic and the story, people would be very disappointed. So people start asking me, like, why are there blocks here? Why are they impacting the mission? Why does, like, why are we on a spaceship? And why are there blocks there? And I was like, don't question it. It's just a game with a story and mechanics, you know? <laughs> and then I discovered that most people were not buying that. So they really wanted a reason why this person was seeing blogs and why solving those blogs would help him on his mission. And I really had to exercise my brain to create connection between both. So where uh, where does the story come from? Uh, it comes from three years of hard work, uh, three years of iteration <laughs> that really took shape. I, I don't think when I started, I had any idea where the story would end up. I think... The main driver was one, I do like sci-fi type of uh, games. So Mass Effect is one of the very good trilogy that I played and I really like the setting of the whole thing. So I like I'm a big fan of sci-fi by itself by default. And then I was making a game and I was like, okay, I need to find a story. And as far as I know, I had never really seen a block pushing game where you were in a spaceship. So I thought it would be kind of cool to just do that. So that's how I all started to like choose the the whole setting of the game but then you need more than just an idea and like a concept and mix them together so i started kind of thinking about what was impacting me in my day-to-day life and how i could maybe use that to drive a story so really to do my research i started doing some reading about you know the concept of global warming and what i found is a book about overpopulation and how pretty much the concept of the more people that is on earth the more po- like the more pollution they will create which will increase the speed at which global warming will happen but that whole book was going through the like not just thinking about okay global warming but what impact will it have on the food supplies on the water supply on agriculture if the planet gets warmer then there's less food available so you need to water your plants more which means that you have less water available which means that some people might not have water anymore which means that they might start wars to survive and etc etc so it was really exploring the whole depth of the impact that global warming would cause but over time i figured that it might not be as interesting as that too you know it's fun to read a scientific book about the concept but when you play a game you might not want to go that deep into the whole spiel about global warming so i instead started to explore the aspect of a character that is isolated in a spaceship and how would that person react to the fact that there's nobody around them 
And I guess we're kind of feeling that on a more daily basis now. Yeah, that's the thing. But over an extended period of time, how would that impact, you know, his well-being? And like, let's say you're stuck completely alone for 30 days. I think a lot of people would go absolutely crazy. Uh, we're, we're, We're kind of lucky right now that we have easily access to calling someone else or some people live with other people. And that's kind of nice because you're not technically alone. Now put yourself into that situation that situation that you're completely alone and you have no outside contact. Yeah, you'd go insane. You'd literally go insane, yeah. And I, I think that's part of the story. And I, that's what I really want to explore with that game is really the psychological aspect of the character going on a spaceship. And then that was kind of just an exiteration. But then I was like, okay, well, he's going insane now. So what, right? And I really want to explore like what would go through the character's mind. And I really try to push while still using, you know, all that I had read on the global warming and overpopulation book, but to kind of spin it in a different way and really explore the the mental health of this character. I feel like that's a really good summation of of the story itself and the deepening mystery as to how it all ends is also um, super interesting. I guess like full disclosure, like I did help you out with the story a little bit and worked on the game. So I kind of know how it goes, I guess. (laughs) I was going to say, like, when are you going to specify that you actually worked on this project as well? Oh, yeah. I was going to do like a full disclosure bit somewhere around here. Trying to figure out where it was. Brian Um, is a page shill. Exactly. Yes. Jonathan slipped me some some uh, ever declining uh, Bitcoin to to come on here. I think it was at least 0.002 Bitcoin. Um, so, uh, given that, so you moved into early access last fall and now, um, you're pretty much like ready to launch. Uh, I think we're dropping this on Tuesday. So tomorrow. Uh, yeah, exactly. So April 8th, uh, Wednesday is when the game is going to go into full release. Uh, so we're going to be exiting early access and going into the full game being available. So pretty much what this means is that the third chapter of the game and the final chapter is going to be made available. There's a lot of other cool things that we added recently, like voiceover that really, I think, benefits the game to a greater scheme, like on a greater scale. So basically people can find this. Um, so the only platform right now is, is on Steam, right? For PC? Yeah, correct. That's only on Steam right now. So uh, if you look for Crew 167, you'll definitely find it. There's not other Crew 167 out there. <laughs> um, any plans for uh, any ports or things like that? Because I know that you're like a one-man studio right now, so it's it's kind of whichever you decide to do is kind of a laborious process either way. Yeah, I mean, definitely I want to try to bring it to other platforms. Right now, there's nothing that has been officially confirmed. Uh, I think I'm kind of exploring at this point other projects that might be interesting, and I kind of need to take a few few weeks away from the project. Uh, but definitely I'd love to bring it to all your favorite consoles, at least you just spoke about a couple of projects. Uh, so like, what is the next step after this? Uh, is it another puzzle game? Is it something else entirely? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I, I think this is the only puzzle games that I will make that is fully focused on that mechanic. I think by making Crew 167, what I discovered is that I have a lot more love for the storytelling and the cinematographic aspect of making games than the actual puzzle. Uh, so the the next game will definitely go more into... You know, the storytelling, maybe add a little bit more uh, different branching path that the player can take to really choose what their adventure would be. Ideally, where I want to go, and that's on a bigger scale, but I really want to do, I want to work on games that are more like RPGs that you can really choose, like, you know, choose the appearance of your character, who you are, recreate your own story and really interact with the people around you. But I also know that these type of projects take 
a lot of different effort from many hundreds of people. And I know this is unrealistic to go from a solo dev to 300 people making games. So I kind of <laughs> am looking for what is the next best thing to go in between. Well, here's my suggestion for you. A Sega CD style FMV thriller, right? From like the early 90s where okay. you have to hit your gamepad to decide the story. Okay. And uh, <laughs> can, can you star into that, uh, that FMV? Yeah, why not? <laughs> you could be the main role. Perfect. Thank you. Wow. That, uh, now I have like I have audio proof of uh, of an agreement reached between us. A, a podcaster oh, stuck in a house that was going to be a slumber party with vampires. <laughs> uh, yeah. There okay, needs to be like we're a, getting a, good ideas here. Yeah. There needs to be like a female like co protagonist too because you need to include that market too, right? If you're going to hit all the the available you know uh, quadrants of gamers. Good idea. <laughs> Thanks, Angela. <laughs> Making a game that pleases everyone. Yeah, that's that's kind of difficult, I would imagine. It's impossible, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know hindsight is always twenty twenty. So one of my last questions for you is like, is there anything that you would have changed during the process uh, to have led you to this point here? I don't think I would have changed anything. But one thing that I do tell people right now that I have gone through the process is don't ever try to make a game on, yourself, on your own. Uh, being a solo developer is not something that I recommend most of the time uh, because it is very tiresome. There's just so many different aspects that you need to think and learn and kind of like master in some ways to be able to do something that makes sense. And I think most people that are from the industry will kind of be in awe that some people can actually do that. So even people that I think have 20, 30 years of experience will still be shocked that people are making games on their own. Right. Because that was my next question is like, what kind of, of tip would you give to like a newer game dev? And I think that is a very good point. <laughs> and, but so as much as I tell people like, don't do a game on your own, I don't think I would personally personally change that uh, because it allowed me to just be able to learn on so many different aspects in a three years and a half journey, even though it's technically a long time. Um, think about any type of bachelor degree you would do, it would still take you something like three years to get through that. And probably I would not have learned as much as I did while making this project. I think that's really good advice. Angel, do you have anything else you'd like to ask? No, it's just amazing that people can still make video games on their own when, uh, I, I don't know if the last time you finished a video game, but the last time I finished a game, the credits went on for like 10 minutes. There's there's a lot of people on those video games now. It's it's kind of crazy. Even some games that you think are very small, sometimes you see that basically there was forty people behind that project. Yeah, and and you think back to the the good old days of the NES, and ten people worked on Super Mario Brothers three. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's the probably the is it the Moore's law that's behind it. So true, it's pretty crazy that they were able to do that and. Like, I think they really deserve all the praise. Nowadays, solo devs can do things that are kind of impressive because the tools are so much easier. Uh, when you think about the NES era, people had to code in assembly and they had 16 kilobytes of memory that they could use. Well, as for now, for most indie game developers, they don't have to worry about the technology behind it. They can just uh, download their favorite engine out there and they can pretty much ship a game within a week and it will be a very good looking game. It will work uh, and they don't have to worry about whether their game will fit on a CD or not. Uh, Jonathan, where can people find both you and Crew167 online? 
Uh, well, Crew 167 itself can be found in many different places. So we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter page, uh, and a Steam page, and also a website. So maybe the best place to get started is crew167.com. Uh, we'll link you to all of those different places. Or if you kind of catch my drill, you can go to twitter.crew167.com or discord.crew167.com, and each of those little subdomain will bring you to each of the I guess most popular different social media, Ex- uh, excluding TikTok. I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a logical progression, though. Uh, it's coming. Yeah, uh, we just need a few more months, and uh, we'll, a- we'll no, I don't think we'll get on TikTok <laughs> at this point. Uh, I would probably have to hire someone to take care of that aspect of different social media. Uh, as for me personally, uh, I guess the only place that I'm kind of active is on Twitter, and my alias is. It's reality O, uh, so I T S R E A L I T I O H. I tweet once in a while. Sometimes I'm more active. Sometimes I take a break. It's true. I've seen I've seen waves of you, and I kind of enjoy when I see you going in a spurt. You know, like when you're like, there's a couple of days where you go hard, and I really enjoy seeing uh, you online like that. It's a whole different experience when I am there. Yeah, definitely. I think <laughs> you need to follow me just to follow the stories that I create, then just disappear. And then you have to wonder, like, what is he doing? Is he going to come back? What is he going to come back with? <laughs> and as for us, you can find us over on Twitter, double underscore density, uh, Instagram, double density podcast. And you can head over to double density.net to find out all about us, uh, including our uh, pasty white faces. Uh, get an idea of where to uh, subscribe on all of your different various podcast platforms. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun to talk about the whole process. I really enjoyed doing these things. Thanks. Yo, thanks for taking the time for us. And uh, tune in next episode as it all gets weird. Once again, Angela, I'll see you around. See you then. <laughs>